0: Hi, I'm Mick Williams, a member of the staff here at CMDA. Four years ago, after 30 years in secular workplaces, I prayed for an opportunity to transition from success to significance. God's answer was an opportunity to serve the over 40 ministries that make up the Christian Medical and Dental Associations as part of the IT and member services departments. Daily, I am blessed to serve and support the 13,000-plus Christian healthcare professionals who make up this body. In the past year, I've been fortunate to meet many of you at missions conferences, at the National Convention, during Thrive events, even on mission in Africa providing health care to orphans. In every instance, I've been encouraged by the hearts and actions of CMDA members as we all seek to glorify God and to bring the hope and healing of Christ to the world through health care. Paul tells us in Philippians 2, 3, and 4, we should in humility value others above ourselves, not looking to our own interests, but to the interest of others. To those of you who have joined the movement that is CMDA to bring the love and care of Christ into healthcare, thank you. CMDA is you, and your generous financial support, mentoring, missions, prayer, and teaching, plus the many other ways you support this ministry, reflect that. It is both a joy and a privilege to serve with you in Jesus' name.
1: Hi, this is Dr. Mike Chupp and you are listening to CMDA Matters, the weekly podcast of the Christian Medical and Dental Associations. You know, Earlier this fall, I had the privilege of visiting with many of you personally, our members, as well as some donors during conferences where I spoke while on our Thrive with CMDA tour. We had stops in Milwaukee and Chicago, Houston, Atlanta, and several more cities. I also had the joy of helping to lead a CMDA tour to the Holy Land in November. And what an experience to walk where Jesus walked. During our conversations, it was not uncommon to hear Mike how can I help CMDA? Well, it's an easy question to answer for a ministry the size of your CMDA. We need people to faithfully pray for our staff and volunteers who work tirelessly to advance the gospel through the various CMDA ministries. We need people willing to lead mission trips. We need people willing to help in our advocacy work in Washington, DC and across the country in state houses. And we need those willing to mentor the next generation of healthcare professionals. The list is so long because there's so much work to be done. However, today we could really use the help of many through your giving to help meet our year-end goal of $655,000. This fall has become incredibly challenging financially. Ministries are thriving, growing, and the rising cost of doing ministry is outpacing our expectations. It would mean the world to me, our staff, our CMDA team, if you would consider a gift today. To do so, just visit cmda.org give or call our stewardship team, 888-230-2637. If you've already given, thank you. You have been a tremendous source of encouragement to your CMDA team and to me personally, as we are making plans for CMDA in 2023. As we approach the birth of our Savior this Christmas, today's episode is focused on a unique way that we can share the love we have as Christians with others. And that is through the gift of live organ donation. My guests this week are Dr. Stuart Connectally and Margaret Frothingham. Stuart is the William R. Keenan, Jr. Professor of Surgery at Duke University School of Medicine, and he's Executive Director of the Duke Transplant Center. As an abdominal transplant surgeon, he directs a lab of transplant immunology that's been continuously funded by the NIH for more than 30 years. He is co-editor of Principles of Kidney Transplantation and has authored over 500 publications. He and his wife have three sons and five grandchildren. Joining Stuart today is Margaret Frothingham, who has worked as a nurse in areas of pediatrics, home hospice, Rural community health in Haiti, oncology, and even at a summer camp. She's trained as a spiritual director and also ordained as an elder in her church. In 2005, Margaret completed a master's in church ministry at Duke Divinity School, which led to a role as director of congregational care in her church for 15 years. After she retired, Margaret returned to Duke to give vaccines and now. She's starting her first year assisting with the spiritual formation class as part of the theology, medicine, and culture program at Duke Divinity School. I think Margaret's story of donating a kidney to one of her family members is incredibly inspiring. So let's jump in and listen to our recent conversation. Well, today on CMDA Matters, I have two guests who are with me, Dr. Stewart Connectely. And uh, Margaret, thank you for joining us uh, today. I appreciate you joining, Stuart. And uh, why don't you tell our listeners about your own story, uh, how, how it happened that you decided to donate a kidney, I assume.
2: I've been thinking about that because the 10-year anniversary of the donation is coming up in June. Back then, in the span of three weeks, my daughter got married, my 93-year-old mother died, and then we went straight from her funeral to Birmingham to donate a kidney to my brother-in-law Wesley. But the decision began two years before the need or the request for me to donate. And my decision speaks to the huge role that our Christian friends and community have on our imaginations of what is possible. We need each other as examples, but also as companions to frame and guide our decisions. So I hope that our listeners will imagine that becoming a living donor could arise out of your Christian community and your your uh, Christian faith, beginning uh, with one friend in that community. And uh, we hope to be those those friends. My friend, uh, Lauren, donated her left kidney to a co-worker in 2011. And basically, her colleague walked into a staff meeting and said, anyone here O-positive? I really need a kidney. And <laughs> that sparked my friend's imagination. She was in good health, and she began to think and pray about it. And a few months later, she had surgery at ECU, East Carolina University. She shared with me about the excellent care she received at every stage of the process. So that got me thinking. And then two years later, uh, Wesley, my brother-in-law, who had juvenile onset diabetes, so he'd had diabetes since the age of 14, had developed renal failure, necessitating peritoneal dialysis by the age of 52. My sister, his wife, let the family know about the next steps, uh, kidney transplant plan. Well, it was super awkward and and hard uh, about how to communicate this to the rest of the family because she didn't want to put pressure on family to do this. And so she decided uh, that she would be evaluated to be a donor. And that's when I seriously considered... Uh, organ donation. I was 55, but I was in good health, and I remember praying about it, and my prayer transformed from, ah, should I do this? To, Lord, may I do this? Would you let me do this? So my sister and I traveled together to UAB, University of uh, Alabama, Birmingham, to go through the extensive evaluation process, which included an interview with a psychologist, And I remember uh, he had to ask me these things, you know, how would you feel if you donate your kidney and it fails? Uh, How would you feel if Wesley dies? And how would you feel if you have complications from this? Because I had done the spiritual, you could say work, (laughs) I was so in the zone of believing it was going to be Feeling like it was going to be a privilege to do this, I was kind of joking with the psychologist and I said, uh, Well, he can't have the other one if it fails. And, you know, the psychologist got very serious and reminded me that it was no joke. So I realized I better stop that. But um, (laughs) that's how far along I was uh, spiritually. And it, it felt like an adventure and an honor to do that with my sister. So, you can imagine it was a real bonding experience for us. And a positive was the excellent care that I received at UAB. And my friend said the same thing about the care she received at Eastern Carolina. We both said, boy, would it be great if all of healthcare functioned as well as the, the donation transplant situation? I got an extensive evaluation renal function, CTs enhanced, and all sorts of other tests, uh, the surgery, the post-op care, I was treated very well with respect and appropriate information for informed consent and, of course, an excellent evaluation. I say I got the best physical I've ever had or will ever have. So it was good for a few years.
1: Margaret, how long were you in the hospital and, and uh, did you have any complications related to the surgery?
2: The donation was uh, laparoscopic with an incision uh, above the pubic bone. So uh, I really, I think I was in the hospital maybe three nights and traveled with my husband and daughter back to Durham, uh, maybe on day four or something, but no complications, great pain management. The highlight was I have I recently looked at a picture of Wesley and I walking the halls together <laughs> yeah. uh, with our little IV poles.
1: And how is your kidney done uh, that you donated?
2: Oh, he's doing well. Yeah, he's doing well.
1: So, Stuart, if I can ask, uh, I, I assume that most of these living kidney donations or others, maybe liver, I assume that they're almost always in the situation of family and friends. Does anyone ever donate to a stranger, someone that they don't know at all?
3: That does happen.
1: It's, of course,
3: infrequent compared to family or friend. But uh, uh, you can be an anonymous donor and, and donate a kidney into the pool, and it's allocated to the most appropriate person. Those people undergo extensive evaluation. We want to make sure that there's been no financial inducement and that they're psychologically stable and so forth. But uh, that is possible. But uh, the majority, of course, uh, living donor transplants are to either a a family member or a
1: friend. What do the data show for uh, donors and how they do uh, in terms of any future risk of kidney failure or other complications uh, with only having one kidney?
3: Well, we're gathering better data on that now, but it appears that the the long-term risk of of developing kidney failure as an organ donor is extraordinarily small. It's estimated at approximately 0.2%. If you've donated a kidney, that can go up to 0.4%, but that's still a very small number. Mm -hmm. So the, the risk remains very low of developing kidney failure
1: yourself. And then of all those organs that are donated, what percentage of those come from living donors?
3: A quarter to a third of kidney transplants are from living donors. It is the most successful type of kidney transplant, though, with the average graft survival time, meaning the number of years that a kidney transplants function. From a living donor, it averages 19 years now, whereas from a deceased donor, it averages about 12 years. Mm-hmm. So that's a significant benefit, of course, of receiving a kidney from a living donor, because these are, of course, totally normal kidneys from a healthy person, whereas obviously a deceased donor is uh, far from healthy. They've just died from something. So there's been some injury to those kidneys. And so there's an inherent advantage, of course, in receiving a kidney from a living donor. There is a tremendous need for kidneys so we have now over 100,000 patients in the United States awaiting kidney transplantation, and uh, about 25,000 kidney transplants performed annually. So only about a quarter of the wait list actually gets a kidney uh, each year. So that's obviously a big mismatch between the supply and demand. The outcomes with kidney transplant are considerably better than with dialysis. So this is an unmet need and and why there's always the urgency of uh, trying to increase the supply of organ donors, both deceased donors and living donors.
1: Well, we certainly are in a, in a country that has a Judeo-Christian uh, safety net influence uh, over two or three centuries or more. and. And giving of oneself, sacrificing for others is at the heart, like our Lord Jesus did, of course, for us And giving himself. And so the Christian faith influences, uh, Jesus says, more blessed to give than to receive. So I'm just wondering, are there trends or associations with faith, as well as a willingness to donate an organ to someone that's in desperate need, that you see that uh, many of your donors, like Margaret, are people of faith?
3: I have certainly met many donors uh, of faith, yes, and our faith— compels us to be generous. As as Paul said in 1 Corinthians, what do you have that you did not receive? So uh, we understand as, as Christ followers that everything that we have had, we've received as a gift. And that compels us to be generous and to give ourselves. So of course, thoughtfully, and of course we have to evaluate the potential living donors to make sure that they're healthy themselves and not undergoing any undue uh, risk uh, in, in the process but I think that our faith does compel us to uh, give generously to others.
1: Margaret, what opportunities have you had over these last 10 years to be in the faith community and to give talks, whether to large groups or even one-on-one, to encourage others to make a a, a donation a sacrifice like you have?
2: Well, we're doing it right now, and I'm very excited about that. Um, I, I would say uh, my friend, again, who had donated two years before, me uh, was my coach in a way uh, to help set me up for success. And from very practical ideas, she said, do start doing Pilates. And I would say at the time I donated, I was probably in the best shape I've been in years. But she also said, don't tell anyone ahead of time. And I said, what? And she said, remember Matthew six where Jesus says, Go into your closet and pray and let this be between you two and uh, then come out and share. So I actually didn't share with other people before the donation. Um, of course, it's my immediate family. My husband was very supportive just to avoid any kind of mixing up of motives or I don't know, flattery or whatever, Um, but to make it an internal decision with the Lord and your close family support people. But I also realized that I have, I had a job where I could be away for three weeks and still be compensated. I had a supportive family who could afford to fly with me to Birmingham and to stay in a hotel or stay with friends. I understood the procedure. So I had a lot of safety net advantages, education, financial security, health, and a spiritual community. And I realized that it's people like me who can, I want to risk to say more easily make this gift. You think of, uh, there may be someone who is perfectly willing to donate a kidney to a family member or to anyone, can't afford the flight or can't afford health insurance if something should go wrong. So there are some disparity things to consider, which drove Stuart and I to sort of contemplate what if it were Christians who had those kinds of safety nets who would be the ones to consider organ
1: donation. Stuart, within the arena of organ donation, what can you share with us about the U.S. experience in terms of healthcare disparities regarding organ donation, whether that's living donation or cadaver donation?
3: Thank you, Michael. Yes, the National Academy of Science, Engineering and Medicine did a report on this published earlier this year. And what they've pointed out appropriately is that African Americans and, and Hispanics uh, people are not approached in the same manner as as whites are. Therefore, the the number of African Americans and Hispanics that donate uh, is substantially lower, and that uh, should not be. And so, there is a real interest in correcting this in the in the transplant community and an appropriate call out for us to improve our act, so to speak.
1: Can you unpack that, Stuart? They're approached differently. Um, There's a whole lot behind those couple of words. What what does that mean?
3: There is perhaps an underlying bias uh, at organ procurement organizations. And I'm saying this, of course, as a generalization, not as a blanket statement, but there is a bias that approaching such families will not result in as high a conversion rate or as high a highest success rate, if you will, in terms of proceeding with organ donation. So there is not as much attention and time focused on discussing organ donation with uh, uh, families of, of color. And so therefore there's in, in many instances a disproportionate underrepresentation of, of such patients as living donors, as well as deceased donors. Now, there are some legitimate reasons why African-Americans may not be able to be living donors. There's a very high incidence of hypertension and diabetes in that community and such, And those would be contraindications potentially to organ donation. So we have to be careful at, at understanding that as well. But nevertheless, the approach toward organ donation has not been uniform across uh, racial groups in the United States, and there's a need to correct that disparity.
1: So how can our CMDA members, their family and friends be a part of increasing organ availability?
2: Of course, this has been studied, uh, how to encourage people, how to safely incentivize people. Um, I say safely and because we know sometimes some forms of incentive can cause a harmful pattern. I did it for the love of my sister and my brother-in-law. And yet what if Christians who could afford to make this uh step do it for love of God, you know, as a as an act of giving out of gratitude to God, to give anonymously. Don't know who's gonna get your kidney. That would take it to another level. Uh, I got all sorts of affirmation. I didn't do it for the affirmation, but of course the affirmation was great. I have to say in my own family, we do not talk about it very much. It's almost too precious. We joke about it a little sometimes that I have a connection with my brother-in-law that no one else has. You know, We'll say something silly like that, but my hope is that People who could donate would without knowing who would receive that donation. Lots of people have studied uh, how to safely incentivize uh, organ donation, maybe providing long term care insurance or ex- providing Medicare to folks who donate a kidney, covering travel to the sites of donation for the donor to travel to wherever that the operation occurs could be covered. All sorts of interesting ideas are out there to help incentivize without actually paying someone to do that, which we know could go in a bad direction.
3: I completely agree with the the premise that it would be so wonderful if if the Christians would demonstrate their uh, gratitude by being willing to donate uh, where it's safe and possible for them to donate. Uh, that would that would add to a long list of ways that Christians have shown their worked out their faith by taking risk for this, the health of the community and for other people, uh, as Christ Himself demonstrated most beautifully to us, of course, by sacrificing Himself and His life. And as Margaret alludes to, there are a number of policy changes that could also. Be made to encourage this. So I encourage uh, Christians in healthcare to think about supporting policies that would promote uh, organ donation. Examples are travel expense reimbursement. Even a policy change, such as providing Medicare insurance, for instance, for uh, living donors, would be entirely reasonable to me because you're allowing a person to be taken off the wait list and to stop dialysis, which would save a great deal of cost to our healthcare community. So I think they're both personal ways that people can participate by discussing organ donation with their family, making sure that they've checked the box on their driver's license application that says I'm willing to be an organ donor, and then respecting that wish for other family members who have indicated uh, their interest, being considered as a living donor, but also to support policy changes that would encourage uh, organ donation. Since this is a huge health benefit that, we wish would be more available to other patients.
1: What's new and exciting on the horizon for transplant uh, science?
3: Another opportunity for increasing the number of organs transplanted are these perfusion devices. We can take organs even from a recently uh, deceased donor by cardiac death and put those hearts, for instance, on a perfusion device and resuscitate them and then transplant them. And at my medical center, we've transplanted over a hundred hearts from uh, circulatory death uh, donors, and uh, we're doing that with livers as well now, putting them on a device that perfuses them with normothermic, uh, meaning 37 degrees centigrade uh, blood, and uh, those livers work beautifully, and we expect that to be able to expand the number of livers available for transplantation to allow us to use livers that we couldn't use uh, previously. There is also the possibility of xenotransplantation now pigs are being considered as potential donors we have some substantial immunologic hurdles to clear before that is technically feasible but i'm sure uh, you and uh, most of the country have followed with interest the heart xenotransplant from pig to human that happened at university of maryland earlier this year and that recipient lived two months That was an exciting breakthrough, but uh, of course, two months is not long enough to make a major surgical procedure attractive uh, to most recipients.
1: I I want to thank you for being a a light for Christ, an example that points people to the faith legitimacy of uh, following Christ and how that makes a difference in our world. I want to thank you for your faithfulness there and just pray that more and more Christ followers will be willing to speak up around the country within healthcare.
3: Well, thank you, Dr. Chupp, and thank you for your example of a life of ministry and medical missions at Tenma Hospital and for your leadership of Christian Medical and Dental Associations. We really appreciate the good work that you do.
1: Well, near the beginning of our episode, Stuart mentioned the importance of healing our vision of health. And that statement is so true for us here at CMDA. It's something we focused on in previous episodes of the podcast, as well as our publications. And that means I have several resources for you to delve deeper into this topic. First, if you're a regular listener, you've heard me talk about this book before. And I wanna mention it again, because it fits so well within this discussion with Stuart and Margaret. And it's Dr. Farr Curlin's book. He's from Duke, The Way of Medicine which he co-wrote with Dr. Christopher Tollefson. And in this book, they ask several critical questions, including what is medicine and what is it for? What does it mean to be a good doctor? Answers to these questions are essential both to the practice of medicine, as well as understanding the moral norms that shape our practice of it. The way of medicine articulates and defends an account of medicine and medical ethics meant to challenge the reigning provider of services model, in which clinicians eschew any claim to know what is good for a patient and instead offer an array of healthcare services for the sake of the patient's subjective well-being. The authors call for practitioners to recover what they call the way of medicine, which offers physicians both a path out of the provider of services model and also the moral resources necessary to resist the various political or institutional and cultural forces that constantly push us as practitioners and our patients into thinking of our relationships in terms of economic exchange. You can purchase your copy today in the CMDA bookstore by going to cmda.org bookstore. I don't think it's a coincidence that Dr. Curlin and Dr. Connectley and Margaret all have something in common. And that's because all three of them are associated with Duke's Theology, Medicine, and Culture Initiative at the Duke Divinity School. The TMC Fellowship offers an immersive one- or two-year residential experience at Duke Divinity School as it equips participants for a lifetime of wise and faithful healing work. The fellowship is open to current and future students and practitioners in any of the health professions, as well as to others whose vocations involve full-time work in health-related contexts, and something like public health workers or chaplains or hospital administrators. If you'd like more information, just visit tmc.divinity.duke.edu, or you can find the link in our show notes today. And if you want to learn more about how you can incorporate your faith into your healing work with patients, just keep listening for this special announcement from Jamie.
2: Those of us who serve in the healthcare professions have the best opportunities to point individuals toward Christ. One of our big priorities here at CMDA is to help train healthcare professionals to integrate their faith into their practice of healthcare. That's why we produce faith prescriptions. This on-demand video series will teach you to share your faith in ethical and appropriate ways with colleagues and patients. And it would also teach you to pray with patients and much, much more. To get started with the series, which is free to CMDA members, visit the CMDA Learning Center at cmda.org slash learning.
1: I wonder, have you started making plans yet for January? If you haven't, now is the time to check out CMDA's 501 Foundations in Coaching course that starts January 3rd, 2023. You can register now for this popular six-week CME-approved course that will equip you to lead more effectively, assist colleagues with their personal and practice-related challenges, and improve patient health outcomes. This course, I guarantee you, will improve your communication skills, especially your ability to listen well. Space is limited and the course is already filling up. You can visit cmda.org coaching for more information and to register. If you're looking for that last minute Christmas gift, then I have a great suggestion for you. Did you know that you can give a gift membership to CMDA to your colleagues? I think you know firsthand the impact that CMDA can have on you and your ability to find joy and connection in healthcare, your personal face-to-face invitation to become a member of CMDA is so much more effective than any mass email or promotion that we could ever send out to Christians in healthcare. You can find more information about our exclusive member benefits and how to give a gift membership at cmda.org join. Well, I plan on being back next Thursday for our special Christmas episode. This year, you're going to hear several voices from around the world on the podcast as some of our missionary members share what it's like to celebrate the Christmas season while on the mission field. As always, if you wanna suggest a future guest for the podcast, you can just email us by using cmdamatters at cmda.org. And if you like our podcast, be sure to give us that five-star rating and share us on your favorite social media platform. Spotify recently told us that we are on the top 10% of podcasts that are shared by our listeners. Thank you for doing that. James 1.17 says, "'Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change.'" As we heard from Stuart and Margaret today, Live organ donation changes lives. I think there's a clear parallel with the gift our Father gave to us through the birth of His Son, Jesus Christ. It is certainly more blessed to give than to receive, and that's because our faith compels us, friends, to give to others. This week, I pray that you will give generously of yourself as you are bringing the hope and healing of Christ to the world through health care. That's what matters to CMDA, and CMDA matters more than ever. We'll see you next week, God willing.
3: This podcast has been a production of the Christian Medical and Dental Associations. The opinions expressed by guests on this podcast are not necessarily endorsed by the Christian Medical and Dental Associations. CMDA is a nonpartisan organization that does not endorse political parties or candidates for public office. The views expressed on this podcast reflect judgments regarding principles and values held by CMDA and its members and are not intended to imply endorsement of any political party or candidate.